0: Well, welcome everybody to City on a Hill Community Church. Um, Christmas is fast approaching, so I'm not going to even ask if you're ready because it's always no. (laughs) So I'll assume you're not, and if you are, then you are a crazy person. But uh we 're excited to be here um, it 's such a wonderful time uh, for the Gospel message of Jesus Christ to be shared. Of course, you know I could say that about any time uh, in life is a great time, but for many, uh, the season of Christmas may open the door just a little bit more uh, to the good news of Jesus Christ and may make some more receptive to the gospel message of truth in life and so As we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, I encourage each of us to to be attentive and alert to the opportunities that God may give us uh, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And of course, we can share by more than just words. We can share by our actions and the way we live our life. Uh, To be a witness is far more than just preaching the good news. It's living the good news uh, so that we may be a witness to him. And so that's my hope and my prayer for each of us this, this time of year. Uh, Of course, we know that many of the traditions that we have are symbolic of the Christmas message. Uh, We have lights that, of course, signify Jesus as light of the world uh, coming into his creation. The gifts that we give are reminders of the ultimate gift that each of us has been given uh, by Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice on the cross. Fruitcake is a reminder of the fruits of the Spirit. Totally kidding. just making sure you guys are paying attention. Uh how could something so awful be related to the fruits of the Spirit, right? Uh, No, of course not. Um, But even many of the secular aspects of uh, Christmas are symbolic um, in their history behind them. And so... Uh, Thus far, we've taken uh, a less traditional approach, as it were, to the birth of Jesus Christ uh, in the Christmas celebration. Uh, We've been digging into the wisdom of John chapter 1, Uh, and so I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. We're going to actually read just one verse today out of John chapter 1, Uh, but this is personally one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture of how it portrays Jesus and how it... um, labels Jesus and clearly um, claims that he is deity, uh, Jesus as God, Jesus as man uh, in one and so all the Gospels, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have a specific audience that they intended to reach in the time of writing. Matthew, of course, is writing with the Jew in mind. He has the lineage of Jesus Christ all the way back to the line of David to start his uh, his biography of Jesus. Mark writes to the Romans with much simplicity and uh, clarification. Uh, Luke writes to the Greeks. Uh, but John uh, writes with all of these people in mind, and uh, both in the, the present time of his writing and to modern day society. Of course, all of these Gospels speak to us today, but he had everybody in mind, every Gentile nation present and future. Uh, And John wrote, as he told us at the end of his um, book, that he wrote that all would believe that Jesus is Christ. And so today, again, we're going to be focusing on one singular verse from John chapter 1, which is, in reality, the heart of the Christmas story, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that's packed into John 1 verse 14, Lord. We thank you that there is reason to celebrate. There is reason for hope. There's reason for joy, reason for peace. God, I just pray for everyone here, you know the situations that they're facing right now, you know the hardships they may be in the middle of, I just ask that you would grant them peace, grant them joy, grant them hope during this time, Lord, that your presence would just be there and they would feel that. In your name we pray, amen. So while John chapter 1 verse 14 is relatively short in nature, it packs a whole lot of powerful truth uh, in those few uh, words and right at the bat we see that john says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that's the key aspect that we're going to be looking at this morning just that short beginning part of verse one or verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us so let's break this down what does this verse mean for us today so there's three questions that we must ask as we look at this uh, verse here number one the word who is he Number two, became flesh. What does that mean? And number three, dwelt among us. What are the implications of that? So let's take a look at these one at a time, shall we? If you're with us a couple weeks ago, we answered the first question. Uh, we, we looked at the first five verses of John chapter 1 in which he mentions the word several times. Uh, but for those who weren't here, or in case we need a refresher, it's always good to jump back to the beginning verses here and answer the question, who is the word? So just jump up a few verses beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of John. It says, in the beginning, here's the word, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, to answer the question here, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning, and the Word was also the Creator. Now the title word has, many, has major implications, as we talked about, for both the Greek and Jew alike. It was the perfect terminology for John to choose when, if he's choosing to speak to all nations, um, speaking immediate truth to both the Jews and the Greeks. And why is that? Well, for the Jew, um, the, word, the, the title, the word, was synonymous with God himself. For the Greeks, that term, the word, was derived from the Greek word logos, which referred to the very power that set the world in motion. The Greeks were, of course, pantheistic, which means that they believed in the universe to be God rather than a creator of the universe. They believed the universe itself was God, and they referred to that higher power as the word or logos. And so John points to the Greeks to Jesus as being the true power behind the universe, the creator that is, in fact, behind the universe. The creation. The excel- this explanation also points us to Jesus Christ as deity. He is before time uh, and he has always been. He will always be. He uses the word beginning. It's really just a statement because Jesus had no beginning. He always was, but our minds cannot comprehend eternity. So John uses the, the deepest form that we have as beginning to help us grasp as best as possible who Jesus is. But we're going to see this morning, and I think it's really quite amazing when we can fully recognize and understand that Jesus was, in fact, before Mary. You know, I was his mother, but he was before Mary. He was before King David, who he was prophesied to be in the lineage of. He was, in fact, even before Adam and Eve. He actually created Adam and Eve. He is spirit, who, as we now move to answer question number two, became flesh. But before we go there, I just want to pause for a moment on verse 3, where it says that all things were made through him, and without, anything, without him, not anything made that was made. It's a very interesting, uh, written, interestingly written uh, sentence, and in fact, you could think you could almost end it right at the comma, right? that all things were made through him. Uh, However, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and some others believe that Jesus was in fact a created being himself. And so if you pause there, they could say, well, all things that we see were made through him, but God created Jesus. But that's not at all the case. And so I think that John continues explaining that without him was not anything made that was made. So if that's the case, if Jesus created himself, that would be a paradox. does not work. Uh, He was not created. He has always been and he always will be. He is eternal. Jesus is eternal. He is God. And we're going to explain this a little bit further. But he also becomes flesh. So read the verse again in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh. What does that mean? We can understand now the Word is Jesus, who is eternal, who is God the Son, part of the three-in-one trinity. But this is an incredibly simple statement that He became flesh, and yet behind it is also miraculously profound. First off, the statement that the word became flesh implies that he was not flesh prior to the events of the virgin birth. He was spirit when the foundations of the earth were created, and then we are told the Creator enters into his creation by becoming flesh. In other words, he becomes human, he becomes man. The term flesh is also used here by Jesus himself in John 6.51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Do you see the parallels here of the Old Testament and the wandering Israelites in the desert? They had nothing to eat and God provided them manna or bread from heaven. And now he also claims himself to be the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, the bread he is speaking of is not a sustenance that keeps hunger pains away. It is an eternal bread that gives us eternal life. But he says that he will give for the life of the world his flesh. So in other words, he becomes flesh in order that he could sacrifice himself for the life of mankind. He became flesh so that he could die. But to answer this question, while the answer to this question is very straightforward, God became incarnate and lived a life in the form of man. It's important to understand that there have been many heresies concerning the nature of Jesus over the history of Christianity. One of them is called docetism. and the Docetism is the idea that Jesus didn't really have a human body, in fact that he just projected one. It looked like it, but in fact he was always spirit. He had just the appearance of a body. This heresy undermines Jesus as being born as a God-man as well as the physical death and resurrection. So it's important to understand that he in fact became fully man while he remained fully God because if he was just a projection, just a spirit, he could not face physical death and he could not face a physical resurrection. Now, it may seem impossible for some, for the Son of God, to actually dwell on earth as a baby. We think about that fact, how humble his beginning was as he entered into the world as a baby. He needed his diaper changed, right? He needed his nose wiped, he needed his toenails and fingernails clipped, you know, he was fed by his mother. And it's all these things we think, that's that's God. And, And so it doesn't really make sense to us that that would be the case. But it was his willingness to humble himself and to take on humanity's weaknesses that made Jesus' victory over death possible. That's very important for us to understand this morning. This is further explained in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that ev- at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he did more than just live as a man. He did more than just live and, then, and die and resurrect as man. John 1.14 is very clear that he also dwelt Among us. Very interesting choice of words. What are the implications of the Word, Jesus, becoming incarnate, becoming man in the form of flesh as man, and then dwelling among his people? I absolutely love this part of the verse. And it's easy, though, to misunderstand the implications of this statement. The Greek word for dwelt typically means to build a tent or to pitch a tent. If anyone's familiar with tents, they're typically um, not long-term structures, right? They're temporary. You, you can pack them up quickly and, and move on. Uh, and so the, typically the Greek word for that would, would suggest that this is a temporary placement of Jesus here on earth during his earthly ministry. But if we look at the book of Revelation... Uh, We come to understand a completely different meaning of dwelt. In 21 verse 3 it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And so the statement that the word dwelt among us is not to imply that Jesus came temporarily to be among his people. Rather, it implies that Jesus, to dwell among his people, is to be near his people, to be near to us, to have access to us. It's about a proximity with his people. And that's the whole point of Christmas so if we took the entire Christmas story, you can really sum it up in this one very short section of 1 verse 14 in the book of John, that Christmas is 1, God the Word, 2, becoming man so that he might die for the sins of the world, 3, so that he may be near his people for all of eternity. And that's what we can get from John chapter 1 verse 14, that God the Word became man so that he might die for the sins of his people, that he may be near his people for all of eternity. An old pastor of mine explained it this way, he said, when Jesus came, John the apostle is saying that we saw him in such a way that the infinite became finite, the invisible became tangible, and where the transcendent became imminent, and that which was far off now drew near. I love that quote. But the apostle John also further explains this incarnation in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. He says, "We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning." Recognize that word, beginning. From whom we have heard and seen, we saw him with our own eyes, we touched him with our own hands. He is there's the word, the word of life. So he says, we heard him with our own ears, we saw him with our own eyes, we touched him with our own hands. He was real, he was tangible, he was human, and yet he is the word of life. He is fully God, he is fully man, I cannot fully comprehend it, (laughs) but that is the truth behind it. I place my faith in that essential truth because I know that the full reality of God is a mystery to the finite mind, and I know that I will see him fully revealed in his full glory in heaven when my time comes. But because Jesus was fully man and yet fully God, that is why John could say that he was full of grace and truth. You cannot say that of just a mere man. That he was fully man and fully God, and so he could say that he was full of grace and full of truth. In fact, he was the truth. It is interesting, though, too, to look at the temple mentioned in the Old Testament, not the temple, temple of Solomon, but the temple that was before that, the tabernacle, as it were, when they were wandering in the desert. It's essentially a tent it wasn't necessarily beautiful. I'm sure they did their best to make it uh, look presentable. But again, they were traveling in the wilderness, in the desert. And they would they would erect this tent. Uh, and, and that would be their place of worship. But it was nothing really to look at. Uh, but as you entered into this tent, and you'd go further and further in, you'd come to a place called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the Mercy Seat. And, and and sitting upon the mercy seat is the glory of God. And it was this, when Jesus came, it tells us in the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that on the outside he was really nothing to look at, right? He wasn't easy on the eyes. He was rather ordinary, kind of plain. Just a rugged, you know, regular old man. Not old, but, you know, just a man. And, uh, but the closer that we drew near to him we got to see the inside. It was really like the Holy of Holies being revealed in a person. The glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. It's such a, such a beautiful similarity there. Um, and, and before we um, get to the end here, there is a video I'd like to show you guys. Um, it's from the Bible Project. Is it on there or no? It is not on there. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's on, it's on the desktop. But I'll, uh, I'll just talk until it gets on. <laughs> um... <laughs> But it's from the Bible Project. And if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, I highly recommend that you go to their website. They do a wonderful job of, um, of breaking down every book of the Bible. And they use um, some media, some graphics, that they do some drawings and, and narrative through them. Uh, they, they answer difficult theological questions, who is God, the Trinity, things like that. They have uh, different things, and there it is. So I'll stop talking. They do a pretty good job of uh, breaking down the, uh, the Christmas story. But it is pretty incredible to think that Jesus is literally God made flesh, as we've looked at today. It's also important to note that he was not just a, a good teacher among many other teachers. Many people like to take his teachings. Maybe they may not believe him necessarily to be the Messiah, but they like his teachings and the morality behind them. And so they say, well, he was just a, was just a man that was a, a good teacher. Um, But, I love this uh, quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You cannot be a great moral teacher even if you teach great things, but then claim to be God himself if in fact you're not God. You can't take any of his uh, teachings uh, seriously. So he says that he would be... um, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And indeed, (laughs) he has not left that open to us. Uh, And now I just want to read through Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 20 together. uh, As we have studied through John chapter 1 and, and studied the word the Logos and how he became flesh and hopefully my prayer is that with this better understanding of John chapter 1 as we read Luke 2 uh, that it would just reveal God's glory further to us. So Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 4 And Joseph also went up from Galilee and when they saw it they were they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child and all of it and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them and i love this part but verse 19 but mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising god for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them but i love that that last portion of scripture you know we have the faith of Mary. She's told that she's going to be with child. She, she's a virgin, and all of the you know the pain and anguish that may have followed her with that. People doubting, you know, okay, Mary. <laughs> Next time I have a friend that gets pregnant, I'll just say it's the son of God. You know, <laughs> we'll get away with it. But you know, she was honest, and she—I'm sure she faced scrutiny over that, and as well as Joseph. And but then to hear this. Further confirmation from these lowly shepherds that they come in and they say, Hey, you know, an angel of the Lord appeared to us. They said, This is the Son of God. Uh, This is, you know, this is incredible. And all these people are wondering what is going on right now, what is happening. But Mary, it says, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. But It is truly a beautiful and miraculous story that really makes no sense on an earthly level, right? We expect the the king of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth to come in such an incredible miraculous way, this grand entrance that everyone would just be so ready for and in awe of with these massive parades, with these major important people in the world, but he comes very humbly and very lowly as the, they explain in the, the video to just turn the world order upside down. And I just want to close with a quote from one of my favorite pastors and authors. His name is Timothy Keller. Uh, and it comes from his book called Hidden Christmas. And if you've never read this book, I highly encourage you to look into it. Um, I have a copy if you would like to, to borrow it. But towards the end of his book, he says, The claim of 1 John 1 verse 1, which we looked at today, that our hands have touched him, never ceases to amaze. How could the infinite become that finite, the extraordinary become that ordinary? Yet that is the very heart of the Christmas message, unimaginable greatness was packed into a manger. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. The world can't comprehend it, it wants spectacle, and so it is the greatest irony that Christmas is the one Christian holiday the world seems to embrace, yet its message is the most incomprehensible to that world. Jesus was not born in a civic arena, but in a stable. He did not go to live in a palace, but was immediately made a homeless refugee. The guests at his birth were not A-listers, but shepherds. The world cannot comprehend a God like Jesus. That's the truth. And I'm going to close with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day and for this time. We thank you for the Christmas story, Lord. I just pray that you would just continue to press it upon our hearts during the season and and every day. Every day is Christmas for for us that we can celebrate. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you that he humbled himself in the form of man, that he may die for us so that he may draw near to us and that we could draw near to him once more. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for us, even though we continue to fail you time and again. Your desire continues to be for our hearts, Lord. And I just pray for those that are here who may be wandering or, or never place their faith in you, Lord, that the, the truth of the Christmas story uh, would just rest firm upon their hearts and that it would grip them in such a way as never before, Lord. We thank you again for this time we have and the opportunity we have to read your word. We pray for all the persecuted Christians over the, across the world. We pray for our, uh, we pray for our military overseas and their families, Lord, during this holiday season, which can be very difficult. Just pray that you'd give them safety and uh, peace and joy during this holiday season and just Christmas season that we celebrate. In your name we pray. Amen.